Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, May the 15th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I am joined via Skype by healthcare guru Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Shannon. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, before we dive into the meat of the matter, I just want to give a quick shout out to the inaugural class of students at the University of New Hampshire who suffered through the entire semester with me learning how to talk stocks. Uh, it was a great experience. I think that we've got some some future fantastic foolish investors coming out of that course. Yeah, and that's so exciting. I mean, it's awesome to have the opportunity to sit under the tutelage of Todd Campbell. I can say that because I learn so much every single week, every time we do the show from you, Todd. So, uh, awesome job to you and to them for going through the course and hope to see a lot of these newer fools on our community discussion boards. Uh, would love to, to start picking their brains, too. But I'm excited uh, for this week's show, Todd. We're continuing on in our series, and specifically our series on earnings. Today is the battle of the big biotechs. That's right. Who had the better quarter, Gilead Sciences or Amgen? We're going to dive into all of that today. But uh, Todd, how about we kick things off with Gilead? Um, And that's ticker symbol G-I-L-D. Todd, this has been a company that's really been attempting to right the ship in so many ways. Uh, They've suffered from years of declining sales, mostly at the hands of a declining hepatitis C franchise. Uh, But they reported first quarter earnings earlier this month. The company, now under new leadership, has been guiding to a return to growth happening in 2019. Todd, are we finally seeing some signs of life here? We had so much fun doing that show, right, Shannon, with Teladoc and Tandem a couple of weeks back talking about the uh, battle of brawl over earnings. And uh, on today's show, we've got two very, very different companies, right? We're not talking about disruptors uh, currently. Uh, we're talking about companies that are some of the biggest in biopharma that are, as you said, trying to get back on the right track. And Gilead Sciences has been Definitely a stock that has tested investors' patience over the last few years, as you mentioned, became a uh, one of the, the most talked about companies in biopharma in 2014 when it launched Savaldi and Harvoni, two uh, hepatitis C drugs that just revolutionized care by delivering functional cures uh, rates of over 90% in as little as eight weeks. And you know because they were just worked so well, and they're relatively high-priced drugs, Gilead Sciences sales rocketed. Um, hepatitis C sales alone for them were running at a peak, running at a rate of about $20 billion per year, which is, is just amazing. But now they fall into a rate of about $3.2 billion per year. And as a re- unsurprisingly, as a result, the company has lost about $85 billion in market capitalization over the last four years. Ouch. <laughs> and the big question there would be, well, is it finally safe to dip your toes in again on Gilead Sciences? And, you know, I think that there were some signs for optimism in this first quarter report. I mean, probably just starting right at the top line with the fact that this was the first quarter in three years that they were actually able to report year over year revenue expansion their their revenue grew 3.7% to about 5.3 billion 
I think it's funny. I don't think I've ever cheered for 3.7% growth, Todd, for any company. <laughs> But for those of us that have been following the Gilead story, 3.7% is huge for this company. Again, we talked about they've had continuous declining sales. So to see some revenue growth here is certainly an encouraging sign. Um, so yeah, 3.7% year over year to 5.3 billion really The, the drivers behind Q1 really came down to HIV revenues and also, yes, CARTA, the CAR-T therapy um, that they acquired when they purchased Kite Pharma. Um, so those are really two of the, the bigger stories, I think, for Q1. What else did you see, Todd? Well, you know, you see that sales, the nose diving, right? As the, the plane is going, the plane that is revenue is falling. And, you know, the question is, are they able to pull this nose back up? And I think that that's what you're starting to see. You know, Gilead Science has made a name for itself in the 2000s on the back of those HIV drugs, not the hepatitis C drugs. And those HIV drugs represent a very large proportion of the company's uh, revenue now proportionally towards to the uh, hepatitis C drugs because, again, the hepatitis C drugs uh, sales have fallen markedly over the last couple of years as the addressable market has shrunk because they're so efficacious and more competitors have come into that marketplace. So the question or one of the things that I saw in this, the, the question I, liked to, I saw I get answered here is, are we finally at a point where the strength that we're seeing in that HIV revenue can offset the declines in the hepatitis C revenue and start to lift that nose of that plane back up. And as you mentioned, very encouraging to see Yescarda's sales more than double year over year in the quarter to 96 million. Yescarda, uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, CAR-T or gene therapy uh, launched a fanfare. However, sales have been slow to materialize. So good to see that nearly half billion run rate and growing for that drug. Also shouldn't forget the other parts of the income statement. We did see an improvement year over year in net income for the company as well. Uh, net income improving to $2.3 billion from $2 billion. And in non-GAAP earnings per share, those improved to $1.76 from $1.48. So if you look again at revenue growth, Uh, and then, of course, net income growth and earnings per share growth, that's what you want to see. You want to see those going in the right direction. And this is the first time in a long time we've seen that. And Gilead also is welcoming in a new CEO. He started in March. That's Roche veteran Daniel O'Day. Um, so in many ways, he's actually coming at a great time for Gilead Sciences, had an opportunity to uh, listen in on the earnings call. And a couple of key things stood out to me. One is, he said, expect more deals. I know that for Gilead investors, the story has been the same. When is Gilead going to make a transformative deal? Many thought that that was the Kite Pharma. Um, sales have been sluggish, of course, with their CAR-T therapy, but certainly picking up picking up for Yescarta and continuing to, to pull ahead in terms of being a market leader. But Daniel Aday is saying expect more deals, not necessarily transformative deals, but more like bolt-on acquisitions, some licensing deals. He's got a background in oncology. So for a lot of investors right now, is this the time that Gilead is now 
shifting and really becoming more of an oncology player. Um, uh, with even Kite right now, he announced he'll be looking for a an uh, additional CEO to run the Kite business and really build up the oncology franchise there. So that'll be a huge area to watch. Another thing he said that was really interesting to me, Todd, was that he really thinks in both oncology and even in NASH, the fatty liver disease, he thinks combination therapies are really going to be the key drivers. So you can kind of start to see where his strategy is going for moving this company forward. And all in all, I think it'll be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I think it's coming from Roche and having a background in oncology, it's been very interesting to see how O'Day positions the company. Because if you look at Gilead Sciences, they've said for years, we want to be uh, a much larger player in oncology, yet they don't have checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, they don't have PARP inhibitors. They've kind of skipped this big development that we saw in the industry in the last five years to jump to gene therapy. Will they continue to focus entirely on gene therapy or will some of those bolt-ons, the phase two, phase three kind of deals that they were talking about on the conference call, will those be um, to try and fill out some of those other areas so that they can have more robust um, combination approaches. I, I, that's going to be very interesting to watch. I thought one of the other things that was interesting that they mentioned on the conference call was the potential for KTE X19. So this is a second gene therapy that Kite uh, has come out of Kite. The potential for a filing of that with the FDA later this year for man mantle cell. Um, was it metacellular or leukemia? I can't remember right now. But um, if they were able to get the data is good and they're able to get that file, then that drug could start contributing to sales next year as well. It is disappointing, though, that the Salon Certa trials in NASH, that was their most advanced NASH drug that was in clinical studies, those did fall short. But offsetting that is potentially a much larger opportunity for filgotinib the uh, rheumatoid arthritis drug that they licensed from Galapagos, they already have positive phase three data in hand, and they're going to present that to the European Union later this year. So there are some encouraging signs as far as late stage products that could be making it to market, you know, within the next, we'll call it 12 to 18 months. And this quarter, even though it had a lot of bright spots, still some signs or maybe question marks to keep an eye on. You've got generic competition uh, in Europe for Truvada, also generic competition for Renexa and Lateris. And really, when you think about their HIV franchise, and it has been a strong driver in this particular quarter, it's really still coming on the backs of their older HIV products. So you've got some cannibalization happening there. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think what investors want to see is just continued stabilization of their HIV franchise. Uh, again, not expecting this to be any sort of growth driver for them, but at least wanting to see some stabilization moving forward. Um, and even though we did see Yescarta, um, as you mentioned, double uh, year over year, it's still been a sluggish start. It won't necessarily be the the needle pusher that many were hoping it would be, at least not yet. But with some candidates in the pipeline like you mentioned, I, I do think that there are a lot of more encouraging signs than discouraging signs for Gilead in this quarter. Right. And if you think about, okay, so how much how much is still at risk in revenue? So they did 5.3 million billion, sorry, in revenue in the first quarter. 
Hepatitis C contributed 790 million. So we've gotten now to a point now where where I don't think that that, that is going to be nearly as it, the sales are still going to drop in hepatitis C, but it's not nearly as big a headwind to to the potential upside for these other other uh, HIV drugs and and hopefully these other gene therapies as they as they continue to grow. You mentioned the generic competition for those other two drugs. I think combined they have another 300 million. So maybe you say, okay, well we've got about a billion of the 5.3 billion in revenue that um, is in is 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 under threat, if you will. Yeah, great points there, Todd. So a lot to watch, a lot to keep an eye on. And again, for our listeners out there, that's Gilead Sciences, ticker symbol G-I-L-D. I had a listener ask if I could repeat the ticker symbols twice, so I'm going to try to remember to do that. All right, so that's Gilead Sciences. Let's turn our attention to the other big contender, and that's the biotech behemoth Amgen, ticker symbol AMGN. For Amgen, just like you mentioned, Todd, this is very much a comeback story investors are hoping to see play out. This is another company that's had a lot of concern about generic competition as well. Um, They reported their Q1 earnings at the end of April. Todd, how did they fare? Relatively flat year over year. Uh, I think they came in at 5.57 billion in revenue versus 5.554 billion. So rounding error difference year over year. Operating income though did drop nine percent. Gap net income fell fourteen percent. Non-gap earnings per share actually clicked up three percent, but that was a lot of that was because of how much they were did in share buybacks last quarter. So. Moving kind of in the wrong direction on the bottom line numbers and then flatlining on the top line. And I know all eyes on this particular quarter were on their migraine drug, um, Amavig. And Amavig was the first of three companies to launch a new type of migraine treatment, migraine prevention treatment, I should say. Um, and really for investors, Amavig has really been, okay, can this be the big growth driver that we've been waiting for? At the end of 2018, they had over 150 thousand patients had actually tried Amavig, um, a majority of new migraine drug prescriptions that were filled last year. So the question for this quarter is really about, can Amavig maintain its dominance and its market share? And we got our answer, Todd. (laughs) Sales slid to 59 million from 95 million three months earlier. And this is really due to the fierce competition in this space from Eli Lilly and Teva Pharmaceuticals, both of which that launched their own migraine drugs late last year. Um, I know there's also a lingering question about a Novartis collaboration deal with this drug, but all in all, not what investors wanted to see, especially for a drug that many were hoping would be the next big growth driver. It still has a chance, Shannon, to be a really big, meaningful drug for this company. I mean, there are 4 million people that take preventative medication for migraine um, in the U.S. alone, and the vast majority, historically, of those patients have discontinued therapy, so they're definitely looking for something that works better for them. I think that, you know, this is a changing landscape competitively, though. There are now multiple drugs that are targeting the same target here. And so you're going to be fighting over price. You're going to be fighting to try and get uh, favorable treatment on some of these drug formularies uh, to drive sales in volume. Um, So it's going to be interesting to watch and see how that plays out throughout the rest of the course of the year. They did say on their conference call that their drug has 60% uh, market share as far as prescription volume. Uh, among this class of drugs. So perhaps that's encouraging. 
Yeah, so maybe still too early, um, but there was some some good news. Also, their cholesterol reducing injection Mepatha did see sales increase fifteen percent to one hundred and forty one million. Their uh, bi-specific antibody um, Blycyto jumped forty one percent to sixty nine million. Their osteoporosis drug uh, went up twenty percent to five hundred ninety two million. In addition uh, to Embril. Amgen's best-selling drug, um, it rose just slightly to four percent to one point one five billion. So there was some bright spots. Um, I think, though, overall, if there were a couple of things that maybe pink flags—I wouldn't call them red flags, but pink flags—with <laughs> Repatha, um, Prolia, and Kyprolis, they did grow double digits, but they actually fell quarter over quarter. And then their calcium reduction treatment, um, Sensapar, did hit get, get, did get hit pretty hard by generic competition, driving sales fifty seven percent lower to two hundred and thirteen million. So kind of a, a granted flat overall in terms of growth, but kind of a mixed quarter when it comes down to the individual drugs. Yeah, investors who are walk, probably reading through the press release and, and listening to the earnings conference call, they might be asking themselves a question about Repatha. So probably good to unpack that a little bit for people. Repatha worldwide unit growth soared. It was up 81% year over year, 90% unit growth in the US, but revenue only rose 15% to 141 million. And people might be might not know why that is. And and so just as a refresher, Repatha, when it launched um, launched up against another drug called Proluent, which is made by a competitor. They both launched to the market with price tags above $10,000 per year. Since then, the price has continued to drop as they've battled out for market share um, and tried to, to, to juice and get volume and, and win reimbursement with payers. So, yes, you've, you're finally at a point now where volume for Repatha is surging. Um, but you're not getting that same percentage increase in revenue because they are cutting the price uh, very dramatically. Um, overall, I, I think that's fine. I mean, this is a huge marketplace, so you want to establish yourself in it and win meaningful market share. Um, but that's that may be something that people had on their minds of of asking. The other thing I wanted to point out is that you know if you look at Amgen's various product fran- drugs in this product lineup. Um, you'll notice a lot of really old drugs. Drugs have been around a long time. Enbrel, Nulasta, Nupigen, Epigen. These drugs are getting long in the tooth, and they've lost patent protection, and biosimilars are getting approved now. They're starting to, to chip away at market shares, particularly in Europe, which we've talked about on the show. Europe's been a little bit ahead of the U.S. as far as embracing biosimilars, um, and that remains kind of an a, a big threat to a significant amount of revenue at Amgen that they're trying to navigate. One of the ways that they have been hoping to try and offset that biosimilar threat is to, if you can't beat them, join them, right? So they came out with their own biosimilars and they've launched a couple now. And they did announce in the first quarter sales of 55 million for those biosimilars. So now they're at a run rate of 200 million per year and it's very early innings for those biosimilars. So I wanted to call that out, make sure people are aware of that. Oh, and and having... To yeah. Just to Go tag ahead. on to that, really 2019 for Amgen, um, they talked about in the conference call just how much biosimilars will be one of their biggest growth drivers moving forward. Um, they have a potential for some to launch later on this year. So it, biosimilars, again, to your point, if, you're not, if you can't beat them, go ahead and join them. And that's really what they're going after there. Yeah, I just, the, the, the one worry or the one th- 
problem is that they have way more money exposed to the biosimilar threat than they're likely to generate in biosimilar revenue at this point. Um, you know, just across Enbrel, Epigen, Nulasta, Nupigen, and Airnesp that all now face generic competition in one way or another somewhere in the world. That's $2.8 billion of their uh, quarterly revenue that theoretically is at risk. So about half of their quarterly revenue at risk. Um, so that's something to just, to just be aware of, that there, there's a big headwind there that they're trying to navigate their way, their na- navigate their way around. Yeah. And so for the quarter, Amgen did end up tightening their guidance for 2019. They're still at the high end of their previously guided range with revenue expected to reach between $22 billion and $22.9 billion. They did lower their EPS range, though, by about $0.02 cents and expect $11.68 per share to $12.73 per share um, moving forward. Um, I will say, Another area that I'll just be watching, we've got ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, their big annual conference coming up in June. Amgen is expected to release data actually um, before that when abstracts drop, I believe this week, uh, which I'll be keeping an eye on. But um, they've got some bi-specific antibodies that many investors are also going to be watching in addition to the biosimilar story, too. Absolutely. So, you know, the question becomes, well, is this investable, right? Is this investable moment? There's a lot of potential headline risk reward over the course of the next four or five weeks because of ASCO. People need to be aware of. I mean, they've got AMG 420 that they're going to present data on uh, at the beginning of June. They're going to present data on AMG 212 uh, early uh, early next month. They're also going to present the first data on a, very, on a new drug called AMG 510, which um, targets, uh, uh, which could be a very, very interesting drug. So write that one down, AMG 510, uh, to see how that, da- that data comes out. So yeah, there's, some, there's headline risk reward here that investors need to be aware of that could create more volatility in what is otherwise n- historically not as volatile a stock um, because of its size. Yeah, very good point. And I think this is true probably of all the major biotechs right now, but they've really entered it just into a period of sluggishness. Um, you've really not seen the innovation and the growth drivers over the past few years. So investors are really hungry to see that among Amgen, Gilead, Biogen, and even Celgene, who's uh, in the process of being acquired. But um, all in all, there's a lot to watch, especially for Amgen right now. Todd, if you had to vote right now, who would you say? had the better quarter? It's a toughie because there are things about each of these companies' quarters that I didn't like. But I'm going to give it to Gilead Sciences because all of their numbers went in the right direction. Now, you could argue, hey, you know, Todd, their bottom line benefited from a lower tax rate, which it did. You know, I mean, so there's, there, you got to keep that in mind. And, and, but they did pay their pay down debt, so their interest expense dropped. That can, that helped the cause a little bit, and because their cost of goods sold came down, increases in SGNA and research and development expenses were kind of offset. So opex and cogs grew about the same rate as revenue. So, and the fact that they did not cut their guidance, you know. So so you have a few different things there that I like more than I like Amgen's because Amgen again, you know, you had you had. Numbers going in the wrong direction, and you had the cut in guidance. So I, I think that I'm going to give the edge to Gilead. And then, as far as the rest of the year playing out, it's really going to be data dependent. So investors should recognize that there's there's news that could be coming on both of these companies that could you know shift them one way or the other. Uh, investors probably ought to know too that 
Gilead's dividend yield currently is about 3.9%. And I think Amgen's is about 3.5%. Yeah, it sounds about right there. I think I will agree with you here, Todd. You've got shrinking top and bottom lines for Amgen. But here we are celebrating that 3.7% top-line growth for Gilead Sciences. I'll take it, especially for a company that has desperately needed some good news moving forward. Of course, one quarter is too short to make a decision. We'll continue to watch this long-term story play out for both and keep all of our listeners up to date. But that'll do it for this week's Industry Focus Healthcare Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is being mixed by Austin Morgan for Todd Campbell. I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. Full on.